But if you would for now open to John chapter 14, as we will continue our verse-by-verse study, as we will look this morning at verses 12 to 14. The great promise. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ in the upper room to his 11 disciples, Judas having gone out now. The night before his arrest and death, he continues in this upper room discourse in verse 12, as he says, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Our Heavenly Father, we ask now by your ever-abounding grace that you would enable me to declare your glorious eternal truth and that your church would be richly edified as to the privilege, the promise, and the glorious gift of prayer that has been granted to us by grace through faith and the finished work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Guide us now, we pray, Holy Spirit, for the glory of the name of the Most High, our Savior Jesus Christ, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Uh, we left off with the words of the Lord to his disciples in response to Philip's request in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father and it is enough. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. The very personality of God the Father has been clearly made visible through God the Son. And if a personality is to be seen in order to represent the invisible God to man, then that personality can no less can be no less than God himself. For that would do him injustice. And it would provide nothing more than some mere parody. At the same time, such a personality of this invisible God cannot remain so far above man that he cannot communicate himself perfectly to his fallen, finite creatures. Therefore, the second person of the Trinity became a man. And it is for this very reason that John begins the gospel with such an announcement. In John chapter 1, verse 18, No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Declared. Him, the invisible God. Declared him comes from a verb from which the word exegesis is derived meaning to explain or to interpret 
this invisible God. And the word of God is the history, or better, his story of redemption, revealed and fulfilled in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. To reject Jesus as the only way to heaven is to not know God, period. To claim that he is but one of many ways is to not know God. The 17th century theologian John Owen, who was referred to as the prince of the English divines, wrote many things about the incarnate Son of God. Here he says this, quote, Those who cannot behold this glory of his by faith, namely, as he is the great divine ordinance to represent God unto us, they know him not. In their worship of him, they worship him, they worship rather, but an image of their own devising. He that discerns not the representation of the glory of God and the person of Christ under the souls of men is an unbeliever. End quote. In other words, to believe Jesus as being anything or anyone less than Scripture declares him to be, and not the only way to the Father, is to be an unbeliever. They're not saved. Because a false assumption such as this, to believe there's, that, that Jesus is one of many ways, is to worship a God of one's own creation. Where this attempt develops to please this fabricated God. You form God in your mind if you believe that Jesus is anything less than that which Scripture clearly declares of him. This man-made deity then affirms and accepts all that sinful men decide to affirm and accept which in the end becomes nothing less than self-worship. The outcome of which is this legalistic endeavor to make themselves better people by some personalized or prescribed standard of morality along with this to each his own mentality. But Jesus, however, is not part of some broad-based plan of redemption. Nor are his words a way towards the truth. He's the very sum total of the entire message of Scripture. From Genesis through Revelation, the substance of which is Jesus Christ. The very words... And the works of Jesus are more than a mere announcement. They're the very explanation of God's attitude towards men and his purpose for men. If you recall, last week I cited a USA Today article which reported that the vast majority of those who affirmed other ways of salvation than by Jesus Christ alone went on to specify that either Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Hindus, atheists, or people with no religion at all as valid options for eternal life. Now that report indicates that 52% of those surveyed 
also belong to churches or denominations that do indeed teach that Jesus is the only way. Nevertheless, that same 52% rejects that teaching. It's essential that we this morning, brothers and sisters, correctly understand the text that is before us and the kind of works that Jesus is referring to here. As well as what it takes to convince such a group as this 52% otherwise. To convince them that they are dead wrong. Let alone those who are steeped in other religious systems throughout the world. This task for these men in that upper room that night was a helpless and hopeless endeavor. Jesus is telling them, you're going to carry on my ministry. You're going to make known my true character. You're going to make known the reality of eternity and the consequences for those who believe anything other than that which I have declared to you regarding myself. An impossible assignment. No amount of logical argumentation is going to convince even the least hostile unbeliever that Jesus is the only way to eternal life. To exhort them or encourage them to embrace him and to believe in Christ alone. And that's really the main thrust of the text this morning. The main thrust of the works for which Jesus is referring to, to these 11 disciples. And in addition to that, all who believe. Impossible. The way that Jesus made known the character and the reality of the Father was by his works and his words. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. The truth of God filled Jesus' words. The power of God produced his works. The God-man. So in the midst of the terror for which these panic-stricken disciples were facing, primarily that Jesus is about ready to leave them and they cannot follow him, imagine their sinking hearts at that point. And then Jesus goes on to tell them that, look, one of you, one of the twelve, will betray me. On top of that, one of you, the very leader of you, will deny me three times. He's going to the Father's house to prepare a place, and to prepare that place was to prepare it by the way of the cross. And he'd be back, he'd return for them, and take them to be with him, eventually. And then he moves on here to tell them that not only was he expecting them to continue his already established work, but also that they would do even greater works than these. I mean, the thought of carrying out his work without him being there was probably the most intimidating and frightening thing that he had said thus far in light of everything else that he declared that night. Now, while this portion of scripture before us is a wonderful, powerful, God-glorifying portrayal of his works, it is at the same time a portion of scripture that is terribly taken from its context time and time again. For instance, if you look at verse 12, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do. That is oftentimes interpreted by many who believe in Christ that they should be able to heal the lame, heal the blind, heal the deaf, raise the dead. And some claim that they do. If you watch many a TV preacher today. Verse 13. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That is oftentimes interpreted as if you neglect to wrap up your prayer in Jesus' name, that it doesn't count. Verse 14, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. That has often been thought by some to mean that if one believes in Jesus and ends their prayers in Jesus' name, especially if you, if, if you give heavy emphasis on in Jesus' name, he then automatically becomes your deified genie to do whatever our lustful desires would have him do. But what we're going to see here this morning is that these greater works are not at all what most imagine them to be, nevertheless are much, much greater than these 11 or any one of us for that matter could ever have dreamed So the reality of Christ's promise, which we're about to look into, know, first and foremost, that it is humanly impossible. Due to the eternal words and works of Jesus Christ and the work of God the Holy Spirit, these 11 men, as well as all who believe, have been granted the greatest privilege and calling in life. That's for you and that's for me, just as it was for these 11. And that is to declare gospel truth to those that are enslaved to the realm of spiritual darkness. The very place that you and I were once captives. Now, these men in this upper room are fully aware of their failures and their weaknesses. Amen? This has been an eye-opening night for them. In the past, during this three-year ministry, Jesus looked at Peter and he referred to him as Satan. He said, get behind me, Satan. John and James, the brothers of Zebedee, the brothers of thunder, they wanted to call down fire from heaven to consume unbelieving Gentiles. Their mommy went up to Jesus and asked him if her sons could sit on the right and the left of Jesus when he sets up his kingdom. All 12 had argued amongst themselves as to who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And if that were not enough, that very night in this upper room, the creator of the universe disrobed himself, girded himself in a towel, knelt down and washed their feet. Nevertheless, in the midst of all their failures and their weaknesses, the Lord blesses and gifts them with privilege, power, and prayer. Remember that. In your weakness. Remember that in your failures. It's not because of you that you get. It's not because of me that I get or have this privilege. It is because of the grace and the merits of Christ alone. That's our three points of focus. 
the gift of privilege, the gift of power, and the gift of prayer. First, the gift of privilege. Verse 12. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. Again, Jesus' immediate audience here is the the 11. Judas is gone. He's out doing his dirty deed. These men would soon be launched into their role as apostles, sent ones. They have been learners. They've been disciples. They will continue to be disciples, just as you and I are disciples of the Most High. But now they take on an apostolic role. So far beyond themselves. The works that they would perform would indeed, in part, be supernatural, physical works. Miracles. However, those miracles were granted to them in order to lend credence to their words, which were his words. The message that they would be preaching would be his message. It would be his gospel. And as they went out with his word, he enabled them to perform signs, miracles, and wonders in order to authenticate their role to all that heard this glorious message. Now, after the ultimate sign miracle of all sign miracles, which was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, raising up from the grave, such miracles were for his apostles and their associates, known as signs of an apostle. Signs of an apostle. And such signs and wonders were meant, were meant for a very small select group. Acts chapter 2, verse 43. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. In Acts chapter 6, verse 8. One of the apostles' associates by the name of Stephen was full of faith and power. He did great wonders and signs among the people. Acts chapter 5, verse 12, And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. The apostle Paul and his ministerial assistant, Barnabas, they had faced strong opposition almost everywhere that they went. And in Acts chapter 14, verse 3, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. In Acts chapter 15, verse 12, Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. In Romans chapter 15, verse 18, I, that's Paul, will not dare to speak of any of those things which Christ has not accomplished through me and were in word and deed, to make the Gentiles obedience in mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, Truly, the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Signs of an apostle. These are all the great sign miracles of God that were performed through these men. Now, once the church was well established, such signs, 
such supernatural healings, resurrections, wonders, and tongues, as we read through the scriptures, they just seem to fade away. Even Paul's own thorn in the flesh isn't healed. When after praying three times, the Lord said, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Again, as the church was well established, at the time of the writing of 1 Timothy, Paul addresses Timothy's stomach ailment. And rather again than a supernatural healing, Paul instructs him in 1 Timothy 5, 23, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for your stu- a little wine for your stomach's sake and your frequent infirmities. So here, this very influential leader of the early church was not miraculously delivered from his infirmities, in other words, from his ill health. Toward the end of Paul's life, when he was about ready to be beheaded. Rather than healing a faithful warrior and fellow servant in the Lord, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 20, Paul's very last epistle, he said, Trophimus, I have left in Miletus sick. Sick. Such supernatural physical sign miracles came to an end after the apostolic age. Does God heal supernaturally today? Yes. Has he always? Yes. Can he do whatever he wants when he wants? Yes. Signs, miracles, and wonders through the hands of man came to an end after the apostolic age. That's why they're called sign miracles. A sign was for a season, and a season for a reason. A sign was for a season and a season for a reason. And there are three historical periods or seasons throughout redemptive history for which God chose to work these kind of supernatural miracles through the hands of man. The first period was through Moses and Joshua who represented the law. The second period or season in which God made manifest signs, miracles, and wonders through the hands of man was through Elijah and Elisha, representing the prophets. The third season was through Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, entering time and space, and his apostles representing the incarnate Son of God and the birth of his church. So Jesus said that night, in the upper room, that not only would they do the works that Jesus did, but greater works than these they will do. Now, the privilege granted to all who believe is not to perform some physical miracle that that were granted to these of the apostolic age, but rather those supernatural miracles that were granted to those of the apostolic age were to validate their message. And their message was up and against the false teachers and the false gospels of the day. This is before the canon was closed. Canon means measuring rod. As the canon, the word of God was closed, once God spoke his revelatory truth to the end, these things just faded away. 
For in that day, if three messengers came into town with three different messages, God's messenger with his message was validated with signs, miracles, and wonders. We don't need that today. What do we need? Three messengers come and stand at this pulpit. What do we need? The word of God. We test all things in light of the written word of God. We hold fast to that which is true. We test all things. We, we study to show ourselves approved. Workmen who's not to be ashamed. Primarily that role and that call is for those of the pastoral ministry. Yet, nevertheless, we all should give ourselves to such study to be able to discern the false from the true. So what we have here is the eternal privilege of declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ in a greater manner or greater extent than the Lord Jesus himself. Now we've been blessed to enter into the advancement of the name above all names. That's our glorious privilege. Is that part of your desire? Do you love this truth so much that you can't contain this truth. What we do is we're called to minister our spiritual gifts to further his call and his cause. His call and his cause. Now this is indeed a privilege and I hope we all see it as a privilege, but with the privilege comes another glorious gift. And that is point number two, the gift of power. Again, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. What does that mean? Now keep in mind this, very important. The apostles never performed physical miracles that were greater than the Lord Jesus Christ. They didn't turn water to wine. They didn't calm storms. They didn't feed thousands of people in one sitting. They never raised a man four days dead in the grave. You don't read them healing ten lepers. Nor has anyone from this time ever performed greater miracles than the incarnate Son of God. If they had these 11 or anyone else for that matter, this would have minimized the very unique work and ministry of the incarnate Son of God in His earthly visitation. It would take away from the unique entry of the Son of God into time and space performing such miracles. And no servant is greater than his master. So what on earth then could these greater works be that are to be accomplished? And when did they occur? The greatest of the greater works through these men are recorded in the book of Acts, which we'll look at in a moment. And the promise here is not greater works in power, but rather greater works in extension. These miracles are not greater in quality than the Lord Jesus Christ. They were greater only in the sense of quantity or in scope extension. So these greater works are far more superior than were physical miracles. Because greater works than these are not physical, but spiritual works that we're talking about here. 
Now, in order for us to understand this, we just ask ourselves a couple, a couple questions. Number one, we must ask how broad or extensive were the works of Jesus Christ on earth? And the answer is that they were limited to the boundaries of Palestine. How influential was the Lord Jesus Christ's ministry? Well, by today's church growth standards, be an absolute failure, wouldn't it? Because day, today, you, they seem to measure success by how many people come through the doors. The, the quantity of people coming through rather than the quality of the disciple. It would be a failure. The masses and masses and masses of people that followed Jesus, they followed until his teaching became offensive and cut to their hearts, and they went back and they walked with him no more, as John 6.66 declares. The Lord's true flock is not as large as it seems to be. Never has been and never will be. Here in the upper room, it was 11. After the resurrection, again in another upper room, those that were praying was about 120 disciples. Nevertheless, Jesus not only told them this night that they would do greater works than these, but also how they would do them. Notice verse 12, because I go. Because I go to my Father. Because he goes, his work will transcend the boundaries of his earthly ministry. How? Look here in John 14 at verse 16. And I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he dwells with you and will be, what? In you. Verse 26. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. John fifteen twenty six. But when the Helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. Many churches today, they're so caught up in the work of the Holy Spirit that in their, in their services, they never point to Christ. They're focused on these works of the Holy Spirit. But the ministerial work of God the Holy Spirit is to point everything and everyone to who? God the Son. Notice. He will testify of me. He who? He the Holy Spirit. Verse 27. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. You see this in John 16, verses 7 and 8, and we'll study it as we go along here in the weeks and months to come. So because of his going away on behalf of his own elect children, he sends the Holy Spirit. And he sends the Holy Spirit in order to fill them with the very life and power of God himself. John Stott, the great John Stott, his last sermon supposedly preached just here a couple months ago at the end of the year. He said this, quote, It is no good giving me a play like Hamlet or King Lear and telling me to write a play like that. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it is one good, 
And it is no good, rather, showing me a life like the life of Jesus and telling me to live a life like that. Jesus could do it. I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like this. And if the Spirit could come into me, then I could live a life like his. End quote. The only reason by which we are able to do greater works in extent than the Lord Jesus Christ is his life in us. This is an impossible task. No human being can fulfill this order. Notice the beginning of these greater works. Once these men were fulfilled with the Holy Spirit, were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began to fulfill this command beyond what they could fathom. Look at Acts chapter 2. Beginning in verse 40. Here's Peter preaching, proclaiming, heralding gospel truth. And in verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. And then those who gladly received his words were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. When did 3,000 souls ever repent in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ? Thousands of people followed him. Thousands of souls followed him, but they were dead souls. And most of them went away and followed him no more. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common. Then you look at verse 47. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Who adds to the church? The Lord does. The Lord does. Only he can. You'll never do it. I can never do it. Look at Acts chapter 4, verse 4. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Chapter 5, verse 11. This is after God killed Ananias and Sapphira. Notice what happens. So, great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. And through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's ports, porch. Yet, none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them very highly. Notice, the unbelievers dared not enter into the church, but they esteemed the church highly. This is the kind of church growth you want. This is what we want for the church. I never, ever want an unrepentant unbeliever to sit here during service and feel comfortable, ever. I want them to feel loved by you all, but not comfortable. Because if they're comfortable week in and week out and they're unregenerate unbelievers, then I'm not doing my job, amen? Come on now, somebody. No. And the... And Believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. The Lord adds to his church. The Lord is doing the work. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were being obedient to the faith. The Sanhedrin. The enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 9, Verse 31. 
then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. They were multiplied. Multiplied. In Romans chapter 1, verse 7, Paul writes, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called by God to be saints. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, otherwise known as modern-day Turkey. The revelation of Jesus Christ, spoken to and through the Apostle John. He writes, Revelation 1, verse 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia. Jesus' public ministry never exceeded the boundaries of Palestine, whereas the infant church covered the Roman world. And missionaries from there to us to this very day, greater works than these you will do. All of which was and is by the glorious work of God the Holy Spirit. It is His work alone. However, it's important that we get this, especially at a church like this where we highly exalt sovereign grace. God is absolutely sovereign over all things, including salvation. Man is helpless to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, period. However, that does not mean that he did or does this work minus human involvement. God's sovereignty and salvation does not mean that he chooses, regenerates, implants the gospel apart from the ministerial work of those he's already saved. It's been well said that predestination does not deny human involvement. It demands it. God's sovereignty and salvation is not fatalism. He has sovereignly appointed the end, those who are saved, just as he has sovereignly appointed the means to accomplish that end, the heralding of his gospel. And another element, which we'll look at in a moment. He commands his already saved people to live and to proclaim his gospel truth. We, therefore, brothers and sisters, are a means to his end. To this very day, we are recipients, just as these 11, of this glorious promise. And once again, this is an impossible task. You will save no one. You will save no one. I will save no one. We are called, however, to declare this truth with a power and an ability far outside of ourselves. This is God's work. And I want to encourage you as you proclaim the gospel, as you share the gospel with your loved ones, with your lost loved ones, family members, co-workers, you can't save them. So as you share the gospel truth, as you herald that truth, don't walk out with the weight on your shoulders going, man, they didn't come to faith. What, what have I done wrong? You have nothing to do with it. You are a messenger. You herald it. You pray for them. The results are God's. Period. Notice there's a qualifying statement here that Jesus follows up with. It's a promissory note. And that leads us to point three. It's the gift, the third gift, the gift of prayer. Notice, and. 
And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Greater works in extension, they will do. Greater works in extension, you will do. Because, first of all, he goes to the Father. He had to go first for this to take place. He goes, and when he goes, he sends the Spirit to broaden out his effectiveness worldwide, globally. And notice this next word, verse 13, and. And and connects us to the previous. Greater works than these, he, all who believe, will do. By what? Next, asking in his name. Praying in Jesus' name is not a magical formula that you slap on the end of some prayer or some lucky charm like Aladdin's lamp or something. In context here, to this direct connection of greater works is the necessity of prayer. The necessity of prayer. Which is the essential element here in accomplishing these greater works. In the greater works is the proclamation of his gospel and transformed lives by his gospel. So what it means is that we pray in accordance to his will, in accordance to his desires, and totally on the basis of his merits. Jesus Christ's merits. He fulfilled it all. So we ask because of what Jesus has done. In order to work out his promise. We pray for that which is consistent with his character, with his will, as well as his redemptive work, his ongoing redemptive plan. So to know his name is to know his nature, to know what he is and to know what he wants to do, all according to his word. So the greatest of all greater works is the miracle of this, friends, the spiritual birth. It's the miracle of the spiritual birth. Not raising someone from the dead. That is secondary to this greatest of all greater works. Bringing the spiritually dead from the graves of depravity into the very family of God. The spiritually dead coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ is a humanly impossible task left to ourselves. Because every human being has two things in common. Number one, every human being throughout time is created in the image of God and is unique from every other created life form. Only man and woman is created in the image of the Almighty. Secondly, each and every man, woman, child, infant, and fetus is a fallen child of Adam. A fallen child of Adam. So regardless of gender, of social status, age, or intellect, we are all cursed by original sin. And are therefore all 
on equal ground, and that is the ground of total depravity. That man has absolutely zero good in and of himself. And they're helpless to believe and obey. Who can change someone like that? So original sin affects every human being and is the consequence of Adam's original sin. Total depravity explains for us the effect of original sin. In that every part of man is affected. His mind, his emotions, his conscience, and his will. Which is not free, by the way. A sinner that is still in his sin, their will is not free. It's subject to their nature. They are enslaved to that nature. So the, the will is in bondage. Only God can set him free. You who are in Christ understand this. You've been set free. Your will is free to worship the Most High. You didn't free yourself. He freed you from the bondage of sin and death. What can a dead man do? Nothing. A physically dead man will not stand up out of a grave. He can do nothing. He reacts to nothing. No matter how funny you are, no joke will move him to laugh. He's dead. The spiritually dead are dead. There's no good in man outside of Christ in man. Genesis 8.21 says that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Jeremiah 17.9, The heart is deceitful of all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Who can begin to comprehend such wickedness? Romans chapter 3, verse 9, For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, There is none righteous, no, not what? One, there is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. And like I said last week, there's no such thing as a seeker-sensitive church. They might think they're seeker-sensitive, trying to reach the lost, but the lost never seek after God. They can't. There is none who seeks after God. You seek after God today because He found you. He brought you to Himself He redeemed you. He saved you. He gave you life. Therefore, you rejoice. You want to be with God and you want to be with God's people. They have all turned aside. They've together become unprofitable. There's none who does good. No, not one. That's total depravity. Total depravity is the result of original sin. This is an impossible task. This is what we've been delivered from, beloved. If you're a born-again believer, you've been delivered from this condition. That's why we're thankful for our salvation. You never say to God that you should be glad I chose you. We rejoice and thank Him that He chose us in spite of us. Sinner saved by grace. You're not saved by your intellect. You're not saved by the discernment to see false gods from the true God. You are saved by grace alone. 
So it is because of such a condition as, as this that the new birth is of absolute necessity and in and, in and of ourselves an absolute impossibility. That is why the preaching of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel, the discipleship in the gospel is to be undergirded and bathed in prayer. In prayer. This is another reason we don't do altar calls here. Which oftentimes becomes an attempt to manipulate people's emotions or to exhort them to recite some prayer. Jesus never did altar calls. The apostles never did altar calls. No preacher ever practiced altar calls until the middle of the 18th century by a former lawyer turned evangelist, Charles Finney. He's the one that created this method. And according to his own memoirs, much of it was very manipulative. He looked back in his own life and he said, how many people in my ministry are even regenerate? And unfortunately, such an act was picked up by the likes of Billy Sunday, D.L. Moody, popularized by Billy Graham and many who follow today. Nothing against these men. These were men of God. These are our brothers in the Lord. But it created a problem that more than anything else that is produced out of this method is false converts. That doesn't mean that people don't get saved through altar calls. Is that clear? God saves people in spite of the methods. Many of you were probably saved at some altar call. Absolutely, I'm sure. However, the long-term effect of such things, as Finney even recognized himself, is that it produces false converts. Our own children, the children throughout the Sunday school classes that are going on right now, what they need to know is not some prayer to recite to invite Jesus in. What they must know is that they are no different than us. They're a product of a fallen race. They're degenerate sinners, and they have offended a holy, righteous God. That's what they must know. We must pray for their souls. We must ask the Lord to intervene in their lives. We must ask the Lord to intervene in the lives of those that we love and care for or that we don't even really know. I shared the gospel again with my neighbor who's 81 years old and he's dying before my very eyes. And as he sat on the tailgate of my truck with me yesterday, I said, how you doing? He says, I'm getting worse. I said, friend, I'm halfway there. If the Lord grants me to live until I'm 81, I'm halfway there. You're going to die. I'm going to die. Where you go is dependent on who you are in Christ. His response, he looks at my neighbor's house. Man, how many antennas does he have on the top of his roof? Man, how many, what are these things called? Satellite dishes does he have on his house? It looks like four to me. Conversation was over. He's facing death and didn't want to hear such truth. Depravity made manifest over time. You're facing death. You don't want to hear it. Only God can save his soul. All I can do is herald the truth and pray. That's the greater works. Declaring the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what we must do with our children. We must... Declare that Christ came and fully pleased the Father, perfect righteous life, a sinless man who was indeed 
God. 100% man, 100% God. He faced and he came to receive the full force wrath of the Father. That's the atonement. That he paid for the sins only of those who believe. God in the flesh. He died a brutal, shameful death on a cross for which they deserve, for which we deserve, and we must tell our children and friends that you deserve that wrath just like I deserve that wrath. But he bore the wrath. That's the gospel. Not say this prayer and receive Jesus as your Savior. You must know this truth. He rose the third day. He ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father and he will come again in glory in judgment. And he's only taken those that are his. Atoned for. A transformed life from such a condition is the sole work of God alone. And yet he calls us to pray in accordance to his will that these greater works of his will be worked out in and through us, the heralding of his gospel in praying on behalf of them according to his gospel. That's the greater works. I've done many funerals, and I would love to have seen this dead man or woman, for the sake of their beloved family, raise up out of the grave. I'm not trying to be silly or cute. I would love to have seen that. I'd love to see people healed from stage four cancer, prayed for them with just as much faith as I prayed for others. Most of them gone on to die. I've seen people healed of stage four cancer. I witnessed a man be healed of uh, liver disease. How? Have no idea. We know a man who was in a wheelchair. He actually walks around with a two and a half inch gap in his spine. God healed him. But that's not the greater works he's talking about. That's God's work. He made those works manifest through the hands of man for certain periods of time. But may we not neglect the greater works and what they are in this context here. This is a spiritual work. We've been privileged to enter into this work. We've been given power to proclaim this work. And we've been gifted with the privilege of prayer. Because only we who are in Christ have access to the throne room of God because of Christ. Unbelievers have no access to God in prayer. God is sovereign. Of course, he hears the utterings of their mouth. But we have a union and communion. Therefore, we come into the presence of God in prayer because we're in Christ. So our side of this work, the, the human element of this work, is that we are simply to proclaim and to pray. For the souls of lost sinners, because we have been found. For the spiritual maturity of the body in Christ, because we too are constantly being sanctified. That our desire would be to see and be part of the furthering of His eternal good, the Great Commission. And a prime example of prayer to line up your prayers with is the outline given by Jesus Himself. This is not a prayer that we are to utter time and time again. This is a prayer that is an outline for us. And T. Michael opened with that reading this morning. Matthew chapter 9, 6 rather, beginning verse 9, what we know is the Lord's Prayer. In this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory for how long? Forever. The kingdom is coming, Christ. And it's still coming. And one day you'll see it as it's meant to be. Notice the manner in which the Lord instructs us to pray. He instructs us to pray for six things. We can line up and see how biblical our prayer life is. Number one, that his name be honored. Treated with the highest honor. Set apart as holy, for he is holy. Is that our concern? Is that our utmost concern? That his name be honored. Also that his kingdom come. That the presence of of, of God's kingdom be here reigning in the hearts and the lives of his people, his kingdom children. That his kingdom rule and reign from those that he saved. And that his will be done. Lord, I'm going through this, I'm going through this, I would certainly like this. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Lord, grant me the grace to pray your will be done in my life, in this situation, that situation, that your will be done. And we pray that he provides for our daily needs. Not our carnal desires. And that he protects us from temptation. Guards us from ourselves, from our sinfulness. And from outside temptations to draw us away from doing the will of God. So notice the answer to our prayers is promised so that the son may what? Bring glory to the Father. That's the ultimate end of all things, is the glory of God. And whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Now, as we see the connection of the last two verses, we see here that Jesus represents himself as the follows, as, as, as the following here. The only one through whom we gain access to the presence of God, number one. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's not one way. He's the only way. The only access. In his name we pray. According to his will, according to his purpose, according to his purpose, according to his merit. Notice he's also the object of our prayers. He's also the redeemer of our souls. He's the only one who is able to redeem fallen, depraved mankind. And we have access to talk to him? May we know his will. May we know his word. He's also, noticed the one who responds to our prayers. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. I will do it. So asking anything makes this a very wide promise, and yet it is always according to his will. So it's essential, friends, brothers and sisters, that we learn day by day what the will of the Lord is according to his written, exalted word. Pray accordingly. You may pray for your lost loved ones for decades. Keep on praying. Keep on striving in the power of the Spirit, you'll never, ever convert them. Only God can do that work. So these works here, friends, are our works just as well as the disciples in the upper room that night. 
Notice the promise is to he who believes. He who believes. A present participle. Everyone who believes. In other words, all genuine believers. It's not based on an individual's intellect. It's not based on how well-versed he or she is in Greek, how many books he or she has written or read, where they went to seminary, where they went to Bible college, but rather it is based upon the works and the merits of Jesus Christ alone. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. His work. So what do we take away from this? Know this, that as a born-again believer, you are privileged to carry on his work until the day we die. You have the power of his Holy Spirit. This is God in you to do the work, to proclaim this glorious work by his power. And that you, we have access to the Most High. To pray in line with His will. To plead on behalf of the spiritually dead. To pray that which is humanly impossible, friends. Yet He uses us in the midst of all this. To proclaim and to pray. So that totally depraved sinners, as you and I once were, will be granted the grace and the faith to believe, to be saved from our condition. The curse of original sin that has affected every part of the sinner. See the privilege? You understand these greater glorious works? power of prayer the price of your salvation the price of my salvation the atoning work of Jesus Christ the great commission we're greatly privileged church I pray that you'll be encouraged by the, the truth of the greater works that all who believe will accomplish all for his glory in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that this impossible task has been first and foremost accomplished by the redeeming plan of you through the finished work of your Son passed on to us by the, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that enables us to proclaim the same truth that the apostles did and to pray to the same God that they prayed to because you've graced us with access so that you not only answer the prayers that you prompt us to pray in the first place, but in the end, they glorify the Father. Thank you for this beautiful, glorious passage of Scripture. I pray that we'll understand by your grace 
the glory of this truth and not to get caught up with the meager teachings of this day which have become so popular by what man does. But always by what you truly do. May we all have the discernment to see through the many charlatans of our day, the supposed miracles which many proclaim today but never give validating proof as the New Testament always did. May we be guarded from the temptation of falling prey to a man-centered theology and remember and recall the truth of these passages of Scripture that you are the sovereign. You work in spite of us, but by your grace, you've chosen not to work apart from us. So may we be faithful stewards according to your grace because of the namesake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, and it is in his name that we gather and pray this day Amen.